BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. launching a book club. Read our book of the month with us and post your reflections in the hashtag readwithforum. This month's book club meets July 22nd to discuss Maceo Montoya's novel, Preparatory Notes for Future Masterpieces. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqbd.org forum. For the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQBD Forum and you can follow me at mkimreporter. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. One of the most remembered scenes in the 1991 film Boys in the Hood is when Trey and Ricky, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. and Morris Chestnut, get an impromptu lesson on gentrification from Furious Styles, played by Lawrence Fishburne. It's called gentrification. It's what happens when the property value of a certain area is brought down. Huh? You listening? Yeah. To bring the property value down. They can buy the land at a lower price. Then they move all the people out, raise the property value, and sell it at a profit. Now, what we need to do is we need to keep everything in our neighborhood, everything black. Black owned with black money. Just like the Jews, the Italians, the Mexicans, and the Koreans do. Ain't nobody from outside bringing down the property value. It's these folk shooting each other and selling that crack rock and shit. Well, how you think the crack rock gets into the country? We don't own any planes. We don't own no ships. But we are not the people who are flying and floating that in here. I know every time you turn on the TV, that's what you see. Black people selling the rock, pushing the rock, pushing the rock. Yeah, I know. But that wasn't a problem as long as it was here. Wasn't a problem until it was in Iowa and it showed up on Wall Street where there are hardly any black people. If you want to talk about uh, guns, why is it that there's a gun shop on almost every corner in this community? Why? Tell you why. For the same reason that there's a liquor store on almost every corner in the black community. Why? They want us to kill ourselves. You go out to Beverly Hills, you don't see that shit. But they want us to kill ourselves. Writer and director John Singleton was just 23 years old when he made Boys in the Hood, which centers the coming-of-age story of Trey Styles and his two friends Ricky and Doughboy, played by Ice Cube. It drew attention to the high homicide rate in black neighborhoods in Los Angeles and mainstream apathy 
towards it. This month marks 30 years since the film's release. And if you were affected by Boys in the Hood, we want to hear about it. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum and email us, forum at KQED. Org. Joining me is Julian Kimball, a writer whose work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Undefeated, GQ, Billboard, Pitchfork. Julian Kimball, glad to have you on. No, oh, thank you for the invitation. Glad to contribute to this. Yeah, glad glad you can too. And Lawrence Ware is with us, co-director of the Africana Studies Program, teaching professor, teaching assistant professor and diversity coordinator in the Department of Philosophy at Oklahoma State University. Lawrence Ware, also appreciate you being on with us as well. Good to be here. I understand that you were both 10 years old when you saw this film. And in your case, Lawrence Ware, you got to see it in theaters. Can I ask you what you remember about that experience? I remember going with my mother and she having all this trepidation <clears throat> about me seeing the film um, because of the sex that was in the film. Uh, it, it's not too much in the film, but it, there's a little <laughs> bit of sex in the film. And my mother had a lot of trepidation about me seeing that, but at the same time, she had heard so much about how important the film was. And so really the two things that I remember quite honestly are the sex scenes, cause I was 10. And, and number two was the fact of uh, Ricky dying at the end. Those are the two things that I remember of that particular experience. Yeah, I mean, Ricky's murder, Julian Kimball, is such a pivotal scene, of course, in the whole film. But uh, what was what was a scene that really stayed with you? Um, I think, you know, I was I saw it when I was about 10. It was years after it had come out, though. I think it's the scene where they're younger and they're, they're kids. Like all the characters are probably about 10 and 11 years old. So about as, as, old, as old as I was when I right. saw the film. And it's when... You know, Doughboy tells Ricky, like, don't bring that football with you. And they run into some like older, like, gang members. And they're like, you know, Adam asked Ricky to throw him the ball, and he just takes it. And Doughboy's like, see, I told you not to take the ball with you. And Doughboy, being the older one and the one who's kind of more rough and tumble, even though he is going up against someone who's probably almost a grown man or at least, like, 18, 19 years old, tries to get his brother's, back, his brother's ball back for him. The kid smacks him out of the way because he's smaller. But that just kind of shows you the differences between the two of them. And those differences manifest as they get older. You can see it in how they operate, just who they are as, as uh, younger men. And even in the way that their mother, played by Tyra Farrell, responds to both of them because of how she feels about their fathers. Yeah, that's such a great scene. I'm so glad you bring that up because you really do get a, a sense of the essence of who Doughboy is, um, which really informs how complicated he becomes later, right, as, as a gang member. Um, Lawrence Ware, I really enjoyed your piece for the New York Times, where you talked about the scene where uh, Lawrence Fishburne, who plays Furious Styles, is talking with, also when he's a kid, the 10-year-old-ish, or right around that age, Trey, and telling him, not to go in the army. I just want to play that cut really quick for our listeners. Anyway, I wanted to be somebody you could look up to. So I guess that's why I went to Vietnam. Don't ever go in the army, Trey. Black man ain't got no place in the army. Lawrence, where can you tell us why this scene made you sit up in the movie theater? Well, that scene um, is it really reminded me of many conversations 
that I'd had with my own grandfather uh, who had fought in World War II. And he came back and after fighting in World War II, he then had to fight uh, to have his own land. He had to fight to, cause he was coming back and he was living in Oklahoma. He had to fight to vote. He had to fight to, you know, integrate. He was, you know, on the forefront of integrating um, lunch counters and all these other mm. kind of things. And so he came back and he realized that the America that he went off and fought for did not welcome him. And one of the conversations that we had had many, many times was that, you know, he said to me, hey, Lawrence, don't join the army. Because at that time I was kind of playing around thinking about joining the army. I was young. Um, and he said, this, this is not a place for Black people because Black people are not welcomed in the army and Black people are not treated well in the army. And so hearing that on the screen made me think back to those kind of conversations that I had had with him. Uh, and it really, really resonated with me. And I was shocked to hear those kind of conversations on the screen uh, that were very similar to conversations that I had had as a young boy. It is so powerful, isn't it, to be able to see something in your own life reflected on screen when it's also told through the lens of Black people, for example. Like in Singleton's film, what you really see is the lives of Black people being being put on the screen at, through his lens, uh, through the way that he was seeing it. And it's so remarkable to think about just how young he was when he did all of that, Lawrence, where we had yeah, a... he was in his 20s. Yeah, go ahead. No, he was in his 20s. And, and the thing that really resonated with me, because at this time I had not seen uh, Do the Right Thing yet. So, mm -hmm. so this is one of the first experiences where I went to the movies and I saw my uh, story told back to me. Now, you know, I'm a young Black boy living in Oklahoma, so it, it's very different than L.A., but nevertheless, this is one of the first times where I went to the movies and saw my story told back to me. Um, and it, it was very powerful for me. You know, now, now there's many different ways that people who are like me can kind of see their stories told back to them. But for me, that was one of the first times that I'd seen it. I had not seen it on television. I had not seen it in the movies. Uh, and so it was very, very impactful for me. And, and uh, Julian Kimball, you've written quite a bit about the film scene at that time and the films that were coming out and how this did come out just a couple of years after Do the Right Thing. Can you can you talk a little bit about that time? Yeah, I mean, the the 80s and then the early 90s, like probably the mid 80s into the early 90s, the idea of like black film and like black films being made by black filmmakers was pretty new and radical at the time. So with Do the Right Thing and then later Boys in the Hood, you have two films by two film school educated, like younger black men giving black perspectives on on america this was this was new so like for for john singleton to give his perspective like and i and i mean his perspective is a perspective of someone coming from that area who's who's lived that life and knows people like that 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 was new at a time when when black film was not really thought of as something that was worthwhile because you know the, with the black exploitation films of the 1970s most of them were not written directed and produced by black filmmakers writers or producers and by the mid 80s you know you, you have this run from spike lee's she's got a habit probably up through 1991 which is a big big year for black cinema that kind of led to this like explosion seeing that these films were not only of, as ridiculous as it sounds like <laughs> of sound quality and exceptional but also could be profitable so you know it, it was really it, it kind of capped uh, an important time in in cinema, 
not just black cinema, but cinema in general, showing like what type of stories can be told while so saying a lot about the era, you know, this is yeah. the crack epidemic, you know, and you're kind of right between like someone like the drug acts and like the 1994 crime bill where there's this, <laughs> right. there's this idea of um, how black people are, you know, and, and these stories are being told by people not from like various black communities that, that make up the various black experiences in the United States. But John Singleton wanted to correct that. He was like, listen, I'm the only person that could tell this story. And he had, he had wanted to make this film for like a long time. Because, you know, like he had grown up seeing films like the John Hughes films of the 1980s, you know, the, the 16 Candles and the Ferris Bueller's Day Off <laughs> and the, the Pretty in Pinks. And he's like, you know, I like those movies because he's a Gen Xer, just like Molly Ringwald or Anthony Michael Hall. But he's like, you know, I didn't, my friends like those movies, but there weren't any people like us. In there. So, you know, we wanted to, we would try to come up with stories like this and all the stories that they would come up with were things that would be kind of like Boys in the Hood, which if you think about it, is, is a teen movie. That's a coming of age story. There's just more at stake for a character like Trey or Ricky or Doughboy than say, you know, Ferris Bueller or, you know, Joel Goodson from Risky Business or anybody else in like the John Hughes films. And right. uh, funny enough, John Hughes actually, he read the, the script for Boys in the Hood. You know, John, John Singleton asked him for notes on it. <laughs> um. You know, one of the things, too, just about, well, the rarity of those kinds of films and also just how how nuanced it it was, definitely the way that the black cop in the film behaved, I thought, on rewatch was such a great and intense depiction of the complications of the time. And Lawrence, where you wrote, it was rare for the black community's view on policing to be so well embodied by Hollywood. What did you mean by that? Well, at that time, there was no Black Lives Matter movement. Um, You know, I had been told, you know, to watch out for the police. I'm sure Julian had heard similar things. Um, But I've been told to watch out for the police. I, you know, I had to talk and all my family and cousins and them (laughs) had to talk. Um, But we had not seen that kind of invited. And again, remember that I hadn't seen Do the Right Thing yet, because Do the Right Thing kind of deals with the police as well. But um, I had not seen this kind of um, and kind of antagonism between the black community and the police force uh, put on screen before. And so seeing it on screen, it really brought um, all those conversations that I had because I'm 10 years old and I'd already had the talk at that time. Yeah. because I think I had to talk around eight o'clock. I mean, eight years old, nine years old or so. Um, so I'd had the talk, but I had never seen anything on screen that reflected back to me why that talk was necessary. And one of the things that I think is absolutely brilliant about this is that the white police officer is rather silent. He doesn't say very much. <laughs> right, right. Um, like the white police officer is like, hey, let's get out of here. Let's leave him alone, whatever. But it's the black police officer that is really going in on these kids. And what that kind of speaks to me is that it's not necessarily a white or black thing, but it's an institutional thing that's going on here. There's something going on with that institution where this black police officer is the main antagonist and the white police officer is rather chill and laid back, but both of them are involved in something that is deeply, deeply impactful to the black kids they're coming into contact with, and also the black teenagers. They're coming into contact with a little bit later on. That that, that later scene 
when Trey is, I believe, a senior in high school, that's the more uh, vitriolic scene. But their earlier scene is just as important because it lets you know that this institution does not care about Black people. We're talking with Professor Lawrence Ware and writer Julian Kimball. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Scott in Martinez. Hi, Scott. Yeah, hey there. Um, yeah, I saw Boys in the Hood um, with my now uh, ex-wife uh, when it first came out in 1991. And um, I grew up in um, Siouxland, Maryland, right outside of southeast Washington, D.C., under similar circumstances and uh, a similar neighborhood. And when, when, when it happens, quote-unquote, at the end, um, I... Uh, was wailed so hard and so loud that like people were like leaving the theater and my uh, Mm. ex uh, swore that she'd never see a movie with me again. Um, So we, we did end up seeing other movies, but I have, (laughs) I have never been able to bring myself to, to watch that movie again. And it's, it's even like kind of, it's hard to even like talk about it now on the phone. Yeah. Do you know what hit you? Do you know what hit you so hard, Scott, in that moment that made oh, you I mean, sob, as you say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it uh, that you know I had I had moved to I had I, we moved away from that neighborhood in like 1975, so it had been a good 15 years or so since since we lived there, and mm. and um, you know I may have, <clears throat> pardon me, I may have like repressed like some of the trauma, and then just to kind of see it portrayed you know so to my memory like accurately and and so uh eloquently on the screen um it just all like came back like a flood you know well, scott i appreciate you sharing that and, and i'm sorry your ex didn't necessarily respond probably as appropriately as you <laughs> might have uh, might have liked but i do really appreciate that reflection um, we're getting a couple more from listeners ramon writes i watched boys in the hood when i was a young teen it opened my eyes to the realities of gangs which i hadn't experienced much growing up in a small town in the central valley still i felt as if i knew the characters the smart guy the athlete trying to make it big and the gangster i could relate to each of them and their struggles my favorite scenes were the ones with train his father 30 years later they make more were the ones with train his father 30 years later they make more sense the movie was ahead of its time and gloria writes i'm a white baby boomer woman who saw john singleton's film when it came out to this day it is in my top 10 of all-time favorite films. It was a ge- He was a genius, and I remain saddened by his untimely death. Julian Kimball, you got to talk with John Singleton, right? Yeah, I actually was fortunate enough to interview John Singleton a couple years before he passed, or right around the time that Snowfall, which deals with similar themes, um, premiered. And, you know, what's interesting about him is, like, I, I told him, I was like, you know what, Boys in the Hood, this is, a, this is a teen movie, John. He's like, you're absolutely right. He's like, you're the first person to tell me that in like 20 something years, but you're absolutely right. And it, I think that he really nailed the fact, uh, we kind of talked about it a little bit, the reality of what it's like to, to, to live in a police like area hmm. when you're actually like the insider perspective, because you have a film like Colors, which came out three years before Boys in the Hood did. Hmm. That was directed by Dennis Hopper, starring Sean Penn and Robert Duvall. Similar themes, you have like it's like gang life in 
South Central Los Angeles, but it's told from the perspective of two white cops. So obviously this is going, it's going to be a totally different perspective. It's like pro cop. It's really about the cops. Whereas Boys in the Hood is about growing up in that atmosphere. You're seeing like why it is that these people are this way. You know, you talk about black, like there's, it is a a very staunch, like anti-violence, like angle. Like the the tagline for the film is increase the peace, right? Yes. But they're also showing you this, like, it's like, we want people to stop killing each other, but like black on black crime, that's not a real thing. You know what right. I mean? Like, there's a there is a whole bunch of like FBI data to support the fact that you know interracial violence is all supported by you know people who are of races. Yes, they they all kill each other. You know? Well, I I want to quote you as we go out, Julia Kimball, where you say that one of the key things about this film that made it so heart wrenching was the devastation of extinguished potential. Julian Kimball, Lawrence, we are so glad to have you both on. Also, thanks to Caroline Smith for producing this. Remembering Boys in the Hood. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.